0: What I'm attempting to do is explain the Scriptures. The things I'm saying are in the Scriptures. I'm attempting to bring out of their hidden places these treasures in a fashion that we can lay hold of them. You are uh, God's glorious inheritance. The mighty power of God is available on behalf of those who believe to clothe you with majesty, to execute judgment in the earth, to restore righteousness. These are all the things in critically short supply in the earth, in our communities. There's not going to come some sort of a a wave of thing through the land that will upset or return things to some settled place i'm sorry but america won't be great again <laughs> yeah. there is an order a divine order that results in these conditions it's not something we do by hu- by the collective wisdom of humankind that will restructure anything what if anything our culture is being shown to be thoroughly bankrupt, crying out for the need for heavenly culture, for the divine culture, for the original intent of God for the creation of man. That's what creation is yearning to see and groaning in anticipation of the revealing. I want to continue on but I want to shift it somewhat into, uh, into the next iteration of, uh, of discussion. Now, the mighty power of God demonstrated in Christ by raising Him from the dead Is exactly the mighty power of God demonstrated toward you. Chapter 2 says of Ephesians, And you He made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the Spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others, just as everybody else. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Now you understand what it means when it says, for by grace you have been saved. Because there's a grace of salvation to rescue you out of the domain described as entrapment in which you were caught now into the domain of the Son of God. And in that domain He begins to work in you to bring about the character of Christ in you so that from your seat you may demonstrate the power of God and the majesty of God within the domains to which you have been assigned. It's not just so you could go to heaven when you die, it's so you could clean up the mess that the planet is in because of the debauchery that has resulted from the God of this world. And, and here it is, "...and God raised us up together..." Look at the word together, three times He says together. He, even when we were dead in trespasses and sin, "...made us alive together," number one. Number two, "...raised us together," He made us alive, He raised us together and have us sit together. It's a progression. He first, The first order was because we were in trespasses and sin He made us alive together rescuing us from the domain of darkness. Inasmuch as He raised up Christ he demonstrated the same power by which He raised Him up on your behalf and this has already happened to you. The fact that you are saved out of the control of, of the, the, the prince of the power of the air means that you've already experienced what is what it's meant by being made alive together with Christ. But it doesn't stop there. It says, "...he raised us up together and he made us sit together." Raising us up together is to say he raised us up in the same manner in which he raised up Christ. And there, that's not about saving you, that is about exalting you. When he raised Christ up, he exalted him, gave him a name that was above every name so that the name of Jesus, representing the authority of Jesus, every knee should bow because he raised him up, he elevated him in authority having raised him up from the dead. That's what these togethers are about. So you were rescued out of the domain of darkness but He didn't leave you there, He elevated you because He didn't just save you so you can go to heaven when you die, He saved you for the original purpose for which He created you. And that requires that He elevates you. He lifts you up like He lifted up Christ, He elevates you to a status of authority. And then He sat you, He robed you, He invested you in the same sphere of authority with which He raised up, invested and established Christ. I have to tell you, when I was studying this, it struck me, I had read this any number of times and never saw three togethers representing a progression. Perfectly consistent with the intent of God in restoring the original lost estate. If you you had abandoned the estate because you were in a state of dereliction and death, the first thing He has to do is raise you up out of it reposition you in the kingdom of God, that's salvation. But that's not all, He had to reclothe you. With the requisite power and authority He had to exalt you, lift you up out of that, which is exactly what we do with sons. fathers. Th- this doctrine of fathers and sons has to do with how the fathers become the instrumentality by which God elevates sons who were once not a people. Someone has to go before you. You can't elevate yourself no more than you could raise yourself up from the dead, no more than you can seat yourself in the high places of authority. God has to do this. This is God's glorious inheritance in the saints, this is the working of God's mighty power on behalf of those who believe. All this from God. The point is, (coughs) pardon me, this is God's intent. This is not our idea. None of these things could we accomplish on our own. Apart from me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. But in Him, in Him, this is not a benign occurrence. If you are in Him, it's no longer a benign occurrence, it's a dynamic one. Once you are in Him, having been raised from the dead, you're exalted you are put back, you are lifted up together and you are seated so that you shall not be moved. No one elected you to this office. It does not depend on the continuing goodwill of the people as to whether or not you occupy it. He seated you in Christ together with Christ These are issues of identity and empowerment. This should have been the discussion all along. Instead, we're groveling for a place, begging God to make sure we go to heaven when we die, asking God for trinkets and and scraps under the table when you've been invited to be the inheritance of God Himself. Someone lied to us. There's actually someone who's called the Father of Lies. <laughs> but there's a there's a, there's an old movie called uh, Independence Day, and there's this one scene in which this fighter pilot. Uh, goes, he's, he's flying his jet up, and he presses the button, and uh, to launch the missile up into the spacecraft, and the missile doesn't uh, doesn't fire. So, but the the bomb is activated. So he points the nose of the aircraft straight up into the the. Uh, Uh, the 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 foreign you know the alien craft and in a blaze in a in a Valkyrie like uh, finish he said hey guys I'm back (laughs) the enemy controlled us but I want to show you the scripture from Ephesians three. This is when we come back. So uh, I want to read from a vo- verse eight. There was a power given to me, a grace given to me. Paul said, describing himself as the least of all the the brethren, to make known the unsearchable riches, make known to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Fellowship of the mystery from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Christ. His intent was, verse 10, that now through the church, through you, being restored, receipted, having once been deceived and plundered, and enslaved, but now being set free, raised from the dead, elevated to positions of divine authority and seated in the heavenly realms, seated in divine authority, to this end. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to principalities, powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he's pointing us right at the heart of the demonic kingdom. We're back. We're back. So let's talk about that. Now come with me to what I hope to uh, discuss as the armor of God. Having all of this being done in us, it is for a purpose. And it's chapter 6, I believe. Finally. Finally. The word, finally, means, in light of the foregoing. Having said all of what I have said, finally. This is the point of having told you all that I have told you. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. Now you understand what it means to be in Christ. It's not a fiction, It's the reality, you've been positioned as members of His living corpus, reconciled to God in Christ, occupying the status of sons, uh, prosecuting the interest of the kingdom of heaven, as legitimate plenipotentiaries of the Debramis of God. You are the, 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 the face of the exousia of God, all of that having been said. Having submitted to Christ so He's raised you up, said, finally, be strong in the Lord because you can be. He's not saying, you know, get your soul fired up and pumped up with a pepper alley. He's saying, you're clothed with His mighty strength so stand up in it. Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the whole armor of God that you will be able to stand against the wiles of the devil or against the devil's schemes. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now where where did you used to be? You used to be captives in that realm. This was chapter 2 said, there was a time when you were like this, subject to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that still works even now in the sons of disobedience. Interesting about the prince of the power of the air, the meaning that is hidden in that is this, That he does not actually have a constitution of legitimate power. God never gave him any power over creation. All he has is the power of lies. The word, the expression, prince of the power of the air, means the authority that he has because of his ability to speak. When you speak, you vibrate the air, you put things into the air. And it only has power if at the other end of the communication you believe it, someone believes it. When you believe it, you empower it. Now. But it isn't a simple issue of logic. It's not a simple issue of the enemy being persuasive logically. It's that he choreographs the words and the lies to take full advantage of your vulnerability. And your vulnerability is this, when you live in the power of the soul, you're constantly seeking the illusion of being in control. And He has formed a kingdom called the cosmos, the prince of the power of the air whose kingdom is considered the world. Now the world over which He is the creator, the krator, the cosmo of which he is the Krator, the, ex- the, ex- the, the one who exercises power, therefore the term Krator, the god of this world. It's a world of systems that are designed to create the illusion of giving you control over your circumstances by the management of these systems. That's the world that we're told not to love. Do not love the world, but it's the same word for God. So love the world. Same, same exact word, cosmos, because it's a different application. You know, I've been traveling in the world, but someone may live in their own world. Same usage, same term, but different usage. So their worlds over which God is the Lord and there's one world over which He's not and you should have nothing to do with it. That's the world of systems that are lying deceptions choreographed to take full advantage of what you fear. For example, one of the systems of this world that you are told not to rely on, you can use them but you must not rely on them because the nature of deception is if you rely on them, they will break your heart. But if you find yourselves in them, you should be able to navigate by the wisdom of God in them. That's why I think this whole notion of the seven mountains is such a stupid idea it simply doesn't understand that there are systems of the world to insert the kingdom into those systems is to subject the kingdom to these existing systems the kingdom has its own systems if you p- it's exactly what jesus what satan offered to jesus Fall down and worship me, and I'll give you the rule of these systems. Jesus said, No, I have my own kingdom. It's not of this cosmos. I'm the ruler of the cosmos, I'm the ruler over the kingdom of God. And your systems are based in lies and deception. And I've come to deliver people out of the control of these systems into the kingdom of God but you know i mean i i'm exasperated at the ignorance of preachers who in their rush to become significant embrace every foolish idea but you know when you when you do not receive apostles you don't have apostolic doctrine so you walk in the light of your own understanding that would be fine if you were the only one walking in it, <laughs> but leading others into it. And one of the reasons that I am entirely uncompromising is that I don't want to have to deal with the fallout of these ridiculous notions affecting you. I don't hope to change any their ideas, the originators of these nonsensical, Perspectives. I don't hope to change their ideas about it, but I do hope to rescue you. No, the seven mountains is a bogus notion of inserting the kingdom of God into systems that were developed to exploit your lust. And I'll show you. I'll show you exactly by using an example of this. So, for years i mean i was on the when i was a young man just out of law school i talked to a group of people in 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 uh, within a circle i was uh, involved with at the time um, christian legal society and one of their thrust was to recruit young lawyers to become part of the judiciary so they could co-opt the system of the judiciary in the United States and supposedly rule it for Christ. That's a popular notion. But what is true is this, the sovereignty of the United States is not based in the Lordship of Jesus Christ, it is based in, by the declaration of the Constitution, in the sovereignty of the people. You're off on the wrong foot because you cannot import into one sovereignty, the sovereignty of the people, the ways of a different sovereign. You cannot. So the judges Cannot rule in any other way except as provided by the Constitution. And if they do, they violate the Constitution and destroy the institution of judicial review. And the nation does not have any traditions that can hold it together except these institutions. The destruction of the institutions is the destruction of the nation and I'm promising you there will be a a blowback against the evangelical church in the United States that is unimaginable in its fury. They've sown the wind and they will reap the whirlwind and it's coming imminently but they've been playing fast and loose with the gospel for a long time because they refuse to acknowledge that the kingdom of God is a functioning reality in time. So they still embrace the notion that you'll engage the kingdom when you go to heaven when you die. So you have to do good works while you're on the earth So that you can prove, it's a very Calvinistic perspective, that you are an elect, you're one of the elect because you demonstrate good citizenship on behalf of Christ. Calvin's notion was fallacious. His idea of making the kingdom of God a governmental reality over people, whether they consent to the sovereignty of God or not, was doomed to fail from the beginning. Because it's the mixture of sovereignties. Okay, so no, you're not going to succeed in bringing the kingdom into the cosmos. We are to bring people out of the cosmos into the kingdom. A different sovereign, God. Translate the gospel of salvation is about rescuing men from the control of the domain or dominion of... This is about kingdoms, for crying out loud. It's not about your notion of good works, you're just picking and choosing as you go, making it up as you go along. There are structures of divine origin and of demonic origin in conflict with each other. And if you don't understand that, you're a babe in the woods. I have an audience beyond this audience and some of what I'm saying is to that audience. (laughs) So, an example of one of the systems of the cosmos and how it compares to the system of the kingdom. and I want to demonstrate by this example it's impossible to reconcile the cosmos with the kingdom. They cannot be reconciled. You have to come from the one into the other. You're to be saved out of the one into the other. But we already have our own systems. That's the point. That's the point. In the cosmos, you need to adjudicate disputes. In the world that Satan contrived to take advantage of you, there's a need to adjudicate disputes, a need to resolve conflicts between people. In the kingdom, there's also a need to adjudicate conflicts between people. It's the the fact of kingdom. My wife and I have the most wonderful, satisfying, joyful, joyous relationship. And sometimes she disagrees with me. And we, we have to bring out the standard. And it judges me as readily as it judges her. When she refers to me as Brother Sam, <laughs> I had no. I know she is invoking a different order of relationship. She is such a wonderful girl, (laughs) I'm telling you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. She's a delight to me. And she will do it with a twinkle in her eye. (laughs) Because she knows exactly what she's doing, and she knows it'll work. (laughs) And it 's the brother Sam, what about she cites the scripture and it undoes me <laughs> Someone asked me, "What is the secret of being having been ma- married for forty three years i said it's simple. two words. Yes, dear <laughs> She's she's entirely unintimidated by me. So, an example of the cosmos, of the system of the cosmos. There's a need to adjudicate disputes whether you're in the kingdom or you're in the cosmos. The point of origin for the system of adjudication has to do with where you assign value. Because that determines what the outcome of the adjudication is designed design to secure. You're not just arguing about for the sake of argument. You're arguing over a matter, right? And that the argument over the matter is a point of disagreement, which may have lasting consequences. In the Cosmos, the process of resolving the dispute begins with assigning value to the thing in controversy. In other words, whatever you are arguing about, the thing is the object of the process. Assigning ownership of the thing is the object of the process. So if there's a dispute over land, for example, or intellectual property, or anything in between, the outcome of the adjudication is who gets it, to whom does it belong, who has the first title to the thing. But what always happens is that the process never results in a reconciliation of the relationship between the persons who at one time were sufficiently close as to have had some interest in the thing. So for example, two brothers arguing over a piece of land left to them by their father's estate. When the the adjudication is complete, the issue of the ownership of the land will be settled but the troubles between the brother will have begun between the brothers will have begun because the process is adversarial in an, a good advocate in this system not only advances the claim of his client but shows also why the claim of of the defendant is fraudulent. So you're obligated to show bad faith on the part of somebody else as much as you have to show fidelity in your claim. The process rips up relationships. Now there are things that this process cannot do. It cannot bring in as a solution forgiveness. It cannot advocate a posture of mercy, kindness, consideration. It can only divide the baby. Death occurs, inevitably, in an adversarial process. Now I actually have... I know what I'm talking about in, in regards to this process. If you are a Christian judge in this system, you similarly are obligated by the law to divide the baby. You cannot arbitrate a solution of mercy or compassion. And if you did that, you yourself are violating the law. And by that measure, you're lawless. So tell me exactly how you intend to invade the mountain of law. And what result do you hope to have? it's nonsense it's no more than industrial psychology masquerading as divine truth it's silliness it is when you when you get down when you drill down below and actually look at it from a structural perspective you would think an idiot is thinking of these things i mean that's what the lawyers i know and judges I know would think about that notion and they would present to you exactly the arguments that I am presenting to you. That's idiotic. We are talking about two different kingdoms. Even they would know that. Then how do we adjudicate disputes in the kingdom? Why is our system superior? Why should they come out of their system to ours? we begin with a different value. The point of the adjudication of disputes in the kingdom of God begins with an assignment of value not to the thing in controversy but to the persons in controversy. The relationship is what is valuable to us. Our entire system is designed to save the relationship. If your brother sins against you, our adjudicatory process begins with minimizing the harm to the brother with whom you are in dispute, even if you are in the right. So you go and tell him his fault just between the two of you. Because at that point, closure may be reached without collateral harm without long-term harm. You can be in the same household after that, you can enjoy the same clubs, you could enjoy the same relationships without any harm. You could see each other without having to go down the other aisle to avoid them. Now, if he repents, You have gained. That's the language of value. If your brother repents, you have gained your brother. When you gain your brother, you're free to forgive him. You're free to have mercy on him. You're free to show kindness to him. You're free to restore him. On one occasion, I was adjudicating a matter between uh, some brothers in conflict. One brother, the the one who was the offender, had stolen some money uh, in his capacity of an employee of this company. He had stolen some money from the company. And stolen quite a bit of money. He had a drug problem and nobody knew about it. He was stealing money too. Feed a drug habit. And uh, the, two br- the two men who owned the company were about to hand him over to the tormentors, to the criminal justice system. And the young man, already having problems, would be lost in the labyrinth of that. He could, he could not have survived knowing the situations as I came to know it. So I was part of a a group back all those years ago um, that sought to resolve disputes between believers. And these three, the two owners and the the young man, had heard of us and uh, referred the case to us and I sat on the panel to render an adjudication. The upshot of it is within that context the young man could plead guilty and he did. And he asked them for forgiveness. He asked the owners to forgive him. And the way the thing unfolded was stunning. The men reached over and hugged him. Both of the owners, the older men, he was a younger man, hugged him. And he broke down and wept on their shoulders. Then I could fashion a solution. And the solution I fashioned and proposed to them, they received gladly. I said, This boy needs fathers and you are in the position to father him. That's why he has the drug problem that he's not a bad person, he's the victim of his own deception. So it's not enough to forgive him. You need to keep on employing him. And then to the young man I said, you need to open your whole life to them regularly. You need to be accountable to these men. I said, if you will do that, they will keep on employing you. And they said, he said, I've been looking for this my whole life. And they said, we'll keep on employing you and we'll plan to meet with you every morning for at least the next, I think they said next three months and we'll go over your day with you, both what you did in the time you weren't here and what you are to do going forward. It saved the young man. I didn't follow up on the story so I don't know where it went, but we fashioned a solution that they all agreed to, that gained the brother. Oh, I did say, I did tell him, pay back the money over time. And he agreed to withholdings from his check to pay back the money. My suspicion is that after a while they released him from it because he was barely making it as it was. It was such such a, uh, a transformative event in the young man's life that I got a call from his mother And she invited me to come and have dinner uh, at her house with the young man. And she put out her very best uh, offering to thank me for saving her son. We experimented with practical, well before I started to do what I now do, we experimented with such things the the organization was called the christian legal aid and referral service and i was uh, at the time i was the director of it and uh, but i got involved with another group to adjudicate it the christian conciliation service and that was 30 plus years ago uh, is an example from that there are numerous current examples but this one serves to put the thing right on the spot, they gained the brother. They gained the brother. Now, why would it be important to gain the brother? And in fact, why would it be even important that you are the one who are being who you are the one who was offended? Why should you go to the brother? I mean, if he comes to you, that might be a different thing, but the onus is on you the one offended, to go to the brother. Why is that? Because when you sinned, He came. When you were alienated from God, God came. So shall we be like our Father who is in heaven. Ours will save families, will save lives from the ruin and destruction and desolation that inevitably comes from the grinding up process that an adversarial process is. Why on earth would we want their system when we have one that is so vastly superior? The problem is we're not practicing our own system. We want the force of police enforcement to be legitimate when we don't need that if we'd practice what has already been given to us. So, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the cosmos. Clothe with the wisdom of God that you might engage the cosmos. And it's not to engage the cosmos to survive, to engage the cosmos, to defeat it. Why? Because this is the reason the Son of God was revealed, to destroy the works of the devil and I'm describing to you the primary works of the devil. These systems that entrap people in the deception of their lust, the illusion that you can be in control. The more you believe that, the more attractive these systems are to you. I talked a little bit about the legal system, there's the financial system, the medical system, the educational system, the system of commerce. There, there, there are these systems, but they are the antithesis of the same systems in the kingdom of heaven. Right? Now, Take up, therefore, the whole armor of God, so you'll be able to stand. And, have, and having done all to stand, verse fourteen, stand therefore. Having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, <coughs> pardon me, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Let's talk a little bit about the effective engagement of these systems of the cosmos and of Satan himself and the wiles of the devil as defined by these portions of the armor of God. Stand therefore, and I'll move relatively quickly through this because. I'm running out of time and there's something I want to get to in the last uh, last two sessions that I have remaining that I think is even more important than commentary on what these systems or what these uh, portions of the armor of God uh, represent. Stand therefore having your waist in, in King James it says having your loins uh, Gird with the truth. We we have typically seen this as um, some kind of a belt around, uh, uh, and we've dressed up little children in cardboard cutouts, and that's our understanding. Having your loins gird with the truth. What portion of your body or what do your loins represent? What comes out of your loins? Your generations. Your generations. You have an obligation to, your, to impart to your generations the things that you have learned that are the truth. Paul said to Timothy, things you have learned from me, among many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The kingdom of God represents a multi-generational reality. We do not need that every generation should start over because if we do, we're constantly losing ground. For those of you who are, especially for those of you physically young and of childbearing age and to those fathers, I would say, train up your children in the ways that they should go. That means, Understand who they are. Understand who God put them in the earth to be because even a child may be known by His doings. Discern who your your offsprings are, even in the natural, and nurture them toward those graces because they'll head to them naturally. If you have a young daughter, Who wants to color her hair blue? (laughs) Look beyond the hair color, what do you see? Here is a creative who is bored with the ordinary. The worst thing you could say is that she's normal. (laughs) That's like an insult. Whether you like it or not, she's going to explore the dimensions of the world she lives in as restricted as those dimensions may be. It's just simply in her to do. So steward it. Talk to her about the responsibilities of creativity. Help her to learn the disciplines of putting down her thoughts if she's to be a journalist. Help her to learn the discipline of putting down her thoughts, perhaps even engage her in helping her to clarify her thoughts. Don't tell her not to think that way, hear her out. Ask her questions. You know I know that? I don't. I've lost track of the color of, of the hair colors. I think she's covered every shade <laughs> in a pretty extensive palette of colors. And there would be times when she would say to me, "Dad, you don't even know." <laughs> I think all young people, at some point, have no idea where old people came from. They think old people are an original creation. There's a hole in the earth from which old people come up, and the first thing you see are gray hairs. In fact, one time I was actually meeting a group of young people, and I said to them, with all that sort of pretended seriousness, I said, "Uh, do you know where old people come from? And as they would say, and they were like, no. <laughs> and I was like, from, from young people, <laughs> and they said, oh, man! <laughs> Have your generations be girded up with the truth. Don't leave their training to their peers. Do not leave their training to their peers," I said to my son Nick uh, when when he was but a teenager, and you know he was uh, he had his friends and they would come over and they'd watch football. I'd go through the the den and I'd hear them you know yell in unison Aah! as somebody made a touchdown or, or whatever. And uh, on an occasion. Nick was always a very compliant child, but on occasion he, he, the sap rose in him. And I, I said to him, I said, Son, I do not have the option of being your father, but I do have the option of being your friend. And I do not choose to swim in the same fetid pools of shared ignorance as you and your friends. <laughs> that, that became a standard statement in our house. Swimming in the sh- same shared pools, uh, sim- swimming in the same fetid pools of shared ignorance, <laughs> became a, st- a standard amongst us. I said, if, "It'd be nice if I could be your friend, but not at that price." But I always will be your father and my generation entrust to your generations the truth of sovereignty. I love what the Varghese's are doing with their sons. I tried to do the same thing with my own children when they were growing up. They're raising their children to be rulers. And their children are behaving like rulers. They're very respectful but they are fun, especially the younger, Stephen. And Stephen was fond of saying, you know, when he would choose uh, an expensive hotel or or something like that, he would say, you don't know who my father is. (laughs) When When my children were young, Uh, they were leaders in the high school band and they often had to call meetings off campus with the rest of the marching band. And uh, I told them, I said, whenever you need to have a meeting off campus, and usually over lunch, I said, whenever you need to do that, you let me know because I will put money in your account so that these kids who come, if any of them cannot buy their lunch, don't let them sit there and say they're not hungry while the rest of you are chewing hamburgers and pizzas. Invite them to eat on your dime, and I will fund you to do that. I was teaching them how to rule. My children have never known, never not known how to rule because they knew that a father would provide the economy for them to rule. They simply had the responsibility to rule. Listen, it's not accidental. Fathering is an intentional process that ensures the generations. How do you think we're going to lift up people out of the squalor of being orphans, we have to reset their minds. This, the, number one, uh, uh, the number one thing that the enemy has done to man is to separate him from his Father. That's the original deception. So the armor of God is to gird up your loins with the truth. This is not talking about a bathroom function. This is talking about your generations. We have to structurally engage the generations otherwise we'll always be fighting a retreating battle. They should come out into an inheritance and build on that. You can always control people who have nothing to lose who have no stake, you could drive down a street and you could tell the difference between people who own their own houses and people who are just renting. The people who have a stake in the game, every aspect of their circumstance will reflect it. Practical things to take back what was lost, The responsibility of fathers is to protect their generations and to invest their generations with the sense of the continuity of the kingdom of God in them. It's a cultural thing. It's resetting the culture. Let me quickly... uh The time is gone. So I'll stop here. I, w- I was going to say, let me quickly talk about put on the breastplate of righteousness. Um, I will say only this, <laughs> I will say only this. A breastplate covers both the front and the back. You didn't just have a, a, a front breastplate, it also covered your back so that the presence of God will go before you and the glory of God will guard you from behind.